0: Welcome to The Friday Habit with Benjamin Manley and Mark Labriola II.
1: The Friday Habit is for creators, entrepreneurs, and agency owners looking for actionable ideas on how to grow their business and be more profitable. We'll pull from our combined
0: knowledge of over 20 years and interview thought leaders that will inspire you and give you the motivation you need to kick your business into high gear. Buckle up. It's Friday. And welcome to the Friday Habit. Hey, Mark. (laughs) How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing well. I'm doing really well. Dude, I am doing well as well. We actually got some uh, pumps, as my wife likes to call it.
1: (laughs) Oh, some pumps. Are those shoes or...
0: No, it's like, you know, when your head's inflating because, you know, people are saying nice stuff about you or whatever. It's like filling your head
1: up with air. (laughs) Uh I see. Yes. The five-star review that we got. Yes. Uh, From Camilla Jean. Uh, Yeah. uh, She said, can't wait for more Fridays. Double exclamation mark. So she's super excited. She said, Ben, Mark, this is so great. Thanks for keeping us short and actionable. I love your chemistry. I know you both have built great businesses, so I'm thrilled to get a peek at how you're doing this. Can't wait for the next episode. Also double exclamation points. So Camilla Jean, thank you. Yes. It
0: sounds like you're living every day like it's Friday.
1: That's right. And uh, yeah, if, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate us in the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen. Uh, just leave us five stars. Or if you're feeling extra generous, write us a little review and we'll read it on the show. Yeah, just helps us reach more people. Yeah.
0: And today you're in for a treat. We have a two-part episode where we interview value-based pricing expert Jonathan Stark. This has been a fantastic, educationally rich episode. You're not going to want to miss this two-part series, uh, but let's go ahead and jump on in.
1: Jonathan Stark is a former software developer who is now on a mission to rid the world of hourly billing. He's the author of Hourly Billing as Nuts, the host of Ditching Hourly, and writes a daily newsletter on pricing for independent professionals. Welcome to the show, Jonathan.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, you
1: guys. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to have you on. Mark and I have been talking about this for a while. And I also wanted to thank you for having me on your show, Ditching Hourly, back in 2018, I think yeah, it was. That was, good. that was super fun. And we still, uh, at Knapsack, are still getting people here and there contacting us saying, hey, I heard you talking to Jonathan Stark on that podcast. And <laughs> yeah. so it started a lot of cool conversations. So I really appreciate that. Great. So one question I had for you, I know we're talking about value-based pricing, but Um, what's so bad about charging by the hour? Why do you hate hourly billing so much?
2: Yeah, I mean, folks who are listening, if you're billing by the hour and you're perfectly happy with it, then fine, keep doing it. If it's not causing a problem, then great. I'm not going to try and change your mind about it. I'll give you some things to watch out for as you progress in your career. You might start to notice after a couple of years, maybe, maybe three years in, you'll be like, you know, I haven't really made any more money in the last couple of years. Uh, At first, you don't really notice that sort of invisible ceiling that hourly billing creates. It's like an artificial limit on your income because you've only got so many hours. And it's uh, not really realistic to imagine that you can you know, infinitely increase your hourly rate. You're going to hit some kind of ceiling depending on what it is that you sell. So if you're a web developer or designer or some kind of software developer or a lawyer or a massage therapist there's a likely ceiling on what you can reasonably charge by the hour, at least what the expectations are. And that leads to, you know, multiply that rate, whatever it is, by the number of hours you've got. And, you know, that's your maximum income forever and ever. Amen.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. It reminds me of um, a book by Mike McDermott called Breaking the Time Barrier. Yes,
2: I've interviewed Mike. He's great.
1: Oh, man. Yeah, I think that that was a game changer for me. So if people are kind of stuck in this hourly billing thing. It sounds like they're stuck in this situation where they're trading time for money and stuff like that. Um, like what are some alternatives to that? Isn't that, you know, one of the only options?
2: It's certainly the obvious option. I mean, most people, when they start out, they don't think, Hmm, should I bill by the hour? They just think, Hmm, how much should my hourly rate be? And they make all these silly calculations Uh, That don't take any of the clients into consideration. They generally the calculations take into consideration what their expenses are and how much I want to make this year. And there's no if you ever go to one of those hourly rate calculators, there's never any fields for the client. Like where's the client in all this?
0: Right. Yeah. It's always like you know how much is cat food this month. You know and (laughs) nickel and diming your expenses. Yeah.
2: It's all about me, right? And we all do service businesses. It's all about the client. That's what it needs to be about if you want to be successful. So, value-based pricing is sort of a reverse; it's it's exact opposite of what people normally do, which is, you know, they'll they get a, a lead will come in and they'll say, "Hey, you know, we'd like you to do some video production for us," and you say, "Okay, great, I'll do some video production for you." And they'll say, well, "What's your hourly rate?" And you will say, "Whatever you say, a hundred bucks an hour." And they'll think they'll and they'll have some expectation based on what the other people who do what you do charge by the hour. right? And they'll say, oh, that seems reasonable. Or, oh, that's crazy. That's too high. Or, you know, or it seems low. And it's crazy because they don't ask how long it's going to take. They make a judgment about how good you are or how reasonable your prices are. Air quotes, prices, because that's not a price. It's just a rate. And they make a judgment based on that. And then they think, oh, yeah, that seems reasonable. Let's get started. Here's the stuff I want you to do. Uh, maybe you give them an estimate first, maybe it's a project and they want to have some kind of an estimate before you get started. And so you ask them some questions about how many files and how long are they, or how many words need to be in the white paper, or how many screens need to be in the mobile app, they, all these scope-based questions. And anybody that's done this for, you know, more than a year is going to recognize that for any large projects, you know, three, six maybe nine month long projects, there's no way you're gonna cover all of the unknowns in that first meeting, especially if you're talking to someone who's not an expert at what you do. So they're not gonna tell you things. They are going to make mistakes. They're gonna use words in the wrong way. They're gonna say, they're gonna ask for mobile responsive and you're gonna interpret that to mean one thing but they actually meant something else. So there are all these bad assumptions and the thing that nobody's talking about while they're talking about all this scope and making all these bad assumptions Nobody really talks about what the client wants to achieve from the project. What's the home run look like? What are we even doing here? Why not not do this project? What's the benefit that you're going to get out of engaging with me for six months, spending a million bucks or however much it's probably going to be? And then, you know, what? What's the success criteria? What outcome are you looking for?
0: So I have a question on that. You know, if you ask those kind of questions to people, what happens if they just look like a deer in the headlights? Like you, you say, what are you trying to achieve or something like that? And they may say, I don't know what I'm trying to achieve. I just know I'm supposed <laughs> to do digital marketing or I know I'm supposed to, um, you know, create videos, you know, wh- how do you respond to, to that or going into meetings where you feel like the person may not know why they're, they're charging you and, and you may feel like, I hope they don't ask me why they're charging me. That. I hope they just sign the bill.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great question. And my approach in a sales interview, and I do call it a sales interview, not a sales pitch or a sales meeting. You're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. And if they don't have some kind of win, if there's no success metric, if they don't know why they're doing this, there's no goal, then you can't satisfy them.
0: Mm.
2: It would be pure luck if you satisfied them. It'd be like you know dribbling a basketball on a court in the dark with a blindfold on and just shooting at random and getting paid by the hour while you do it. So (laughs) what ends up happening is after a while, the client starts to feel like, geez, um, I'm spending a lot of money here and we're not any closer to the goal because there was no goal. Mm. Maybe there is a goal in their head, but they never stated it. So they know what it is, but you don't. So you're just shooting in the dark, shooting in the dark, shooting in the dark, and they're getting more and more agitated because you're not making progress toward this unstated goal. Maybe it's subconscious goal, but they know you're not getting closer to it. They can sense it. So I would not, first of all, I wouldn't take on a client that it's, that's like a a recipe to lose. It's a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. If you take, if you take on a client who doesn't know what they want, then how can you satisfy them? And in a service business, the most important product that you can create is customer satisfaction. So if I don't know how to satisfy someone or I'm not confident that I can, I'm not going to take that client.
1: Mm.
0: That makes that makes a ton of sense. And I know as creatives, one of the biggest frustrations is clients not understanding what they want. And so you're, you're constantly going back and forth on like design revisions or, you know, make the font bigger, or can you change this a little bit or darker blue, whatever that may be, right? And it's constantly frustrating because you're like, what are we trying to achieve with this logo design? Or, <laughs> you
1: know?
2: That's where all those fights come from. All right. those fights come from mismatched expectations about what you're trying to achieve. And a designer, just to pick on logos because you just mentioned it, a designer who doesn't know what the goal is is going to fall back to best practices. But best practices are not rules. They're just best practices, the guidelines. There might be exceptions in this client's situation they might need something quick and dirty for a very good reason or they might need something that's going to last them for the next 10 years for a very good reason so if you don't figure that out up front then that's exactly what it leads to this weird micromanaging thing where the goal is either unclear to them or it's so obvious to them that they never thought to mention it it happens all the time with software projects that's my background is in software i've seen it a million times where somebody's like we know we need a responsive we need a mobile responsive site because the new Google, the new Google mobile apocalypse, you know, way back whenever that was, and I'll say, okay, um, why why do you need that? Like, why is this the way to go? Why not you just use a WordPress theme that's responsive, or you know, why not do all these other things that would be a lot cheaper and less risky than hiring someone expensive like me? And if I can talk them, if I if I can talk them out of working with me that easily in one meeting, after they reached out to me then it would have been a bad fit and there's not a lot of value there. And they probably just need someone who's either junior or, you know, from Fiverr and that'll be sufficient. You know, but if they, if they have a big project that is a bet the business thing or there's a lot of money at stake or their jobs at stake and they can't screw it up, they need to get it right the first time and it has to be in a hurry, then we can talk because, you know, I've written books about this stuff. I was sort of well known for it at one time. You know, then that's, there's enough value there for a client like that that I can charge high prices. I can set my fees really high and still be w- totally worth it. And then my costs, you know, are going to be less than my price, so it, it's a win for everybody. Everybody makes a profit. But I can't, you know, if I, I can't just come in and say like I charge a million bucks for a responsive rebuild or something like that and expect a mom-and-pop pizza place to be like, oh, yeah, I see the value in that. It's going to be a lot of work for you. We'll figure out how to pay you for that. Right. There's no win for them. There's no right. win scenario, mm-hmm. because if they spend a million bucks on that, they'll probably go out of business. They're never going to sell enough pizza to recoup that money. But if you it's know. Domino's, and they're selling a million dollars of pizza a second already, and they want to make it two million, and they see all this mobile traffic bouncing off of their awful desktop I assume it was awful back then,
1: awful desktop
2: site. (laughs) Then there's a huge value in doing it right, not screwing it up, releasing it in a way that is not going to tick off their customers, so on and so forth. So not every single project is automatically a million-dollar project.
1: Right. And it almost seems like this is interesting because it seems like a a kind of a more ethical way to price things in a way. because hundred percent. Yeah, because you, you... I I have customers come to me sometimes, you know, and say, Hey, we really want to build this website. We have this business idea, you know, here's, here's the concept. Here's my content. Can we build this? I'm like, I can build this for you, but you, you haven't tested this idea. You don't really have an audience yet. There's a lot of things I see here to where if we build this site, there's a risk that no one's going to buy this because you're not even sure if the idea works yet. So really the value to them isn't there. So then that means, I wouldn't charge them much because there's not much value, which means I wouldn't take the project. So it kind of helps. Sounds like it helps eliminate some of those situations where someone's getting ripped off because they're just saying, "Hey, I want this thing," and it's like, "Well, it cost this much," um, and that, that leaves them kind of high and dry.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's. I mean, I had tons of experiences back when. You know, the iPhone was really taking off and everybody wanted an app. I'd go to a barbecue and somebody would find out that I did mobile consulting and everybody would be a line of people telling me about their great app idea and how they're going to replace Facebook and all that stuff. And who knows? Maybe one of them turned into something. But, you know, no, no way. Like (laughs) the odds are so low and I'm not I'm risk averse in that way. Like I'm not a gambler and I don't really want to work with gamblers. It's fine if people want to be like that, but that's too stressful for me. I don't want to hear like, oh, yeah, I remortgage my house to pay your next invoice. Like, I can't live like that. (laughs) Right. The flip side to the the mom and pop pizza and that you were saying the value is not there for them. Therefore, it wouldn't feel right to charge them a lot of money and and have them pay it. The other thing you can do with value pricing, and this is is the thing that's really counterintuitive about it. the The thing that's radical about it is you start with the value to them, you know, so let's say this mom and pop pizza place you were describing, there might be some value in some kind of mobile experience or something or some kind of app idea or whatever. There might be some value in it. If you figure out what that is, let's say it's 10,000 bucks. It'd be worth 10,000 bucks to me to flesh this idea out or have it bring it into reality in some way, for some reason, maybe to go get funding or maybe to, maybe to start doing user testing or something something that has some value, maybe not a direct bottom line or top line cash income type of thing, but some value to the person. Then you can say, all right, I think the value is around $10,000 for this. I'm going to write a proposal for them with three prices. One price can be $1,000, the other price can be $2,200, and then a $5,000 price. And you're just guessing at the $10,000 of value. And then you give yourself these three prices. You have not yet thought about what you were going to do. You're just setting three budgets that are significantly lower than what you think the value might be to this particular person. Mm-hmm. And then I would say to myself, all right, I know what they're trying to achieve here. You know, They're trying to, um, I don't know, support a pitch deck with a demo so they can go around and actually validate this idea. And it's worth 10,000 bucks to this guy, Bob. All right, that seems, that seems reasonable to me. What can I do for a thousand bucks to help Bob get closer to this goal that would still feel like a profitable engagement for me? So I'm not gonna be building stuff. But maybe I could sketch it out, or maybe I could teach him how to use—I don't know—some prototyping tool like Balsamic or some Whatever is hip now, mm-hmm. you know. There's something I can probably do to help Bob get a little bit closer to whatever he's trying to achieve at a budget or at a price that is set uh, in such a way that he would be happy to do that. So it doesn't. So one of the cool things about value pricing is that it it rewards people who think really broadly about. Their skill set so let's say you're a WordPress developer I tell people to don't think about or Squarespace I should say let's say <laughs> you're a, let's say you're a Squarespace designer developer whatever you would call yourself if you only think about yourself in the sense like I build squarespace sites if that's all you think about it's going to be really hard to do what I just described right but if instead you think I know how to build squarespace sites it doesn't mean you have to go build it. It just means that you know how to do it. And there might be some way you're an expert. You have expertise in that area. You might be able to just give them some educational content. Uh, you might be able to give them a quick training, uh, maybe a pair programming thing over Zoom, something like that for a thousand bucks that's going to give the person some progress toward that goal at a price that's reasonable to them.
0: So I want to go back to that that uh, sales interview. What are some qualifying questions that people can ask? You know, what are some of the things that, that you can ask that can really get to what you're trying to understand so that you can price things appropriately?
2: Yeah, so I have a series of what I call the why conversation questions. And there's, they fall into three groups. Why this, why now, and why me? And when I go into the sales interview, it's basically always the same thing. There's some email communication first, I qualify them a little bit over email, so there's a difference in qualification of the client and then actually uncovering the value to them. I I think what you mean is the value part, but for whatever reason, they seem like the real deal. They seem serious; they're not tire kickers. I could be wrong, but you know, you can kind of tell after a while. We set up a meeting, and they'll have a tendency to like brain dump on me what they think needs to be done, and it's kind of one of those usually one of those situations where. They've educated themselves enough to be dangerous. They might even say that, you know, oh, I know enough to be dangerous with this. So, you know, here's what we we want you to do. And I'll politely listen to that. It usually takes about 20 minutes or so for them to kind of get all of that off their chest. But it's a little bit like telling your surgeon how, it's a little bit like telling your surgeon how you want them to perform the triple bypass. Right. It's nice that they researched it and they might know a little bit about it and they think they have a plan, but it's a self-diagnosis. Maybe it's right maybe it's not. So once they've gotten that off their chest, I'll say, okay, let's, this is great. I've got pages of notes here.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Let's back up for a second and talk about how this project exists in the context of your business. Well, what's the point? Why not not do this? This is going to take a long time. It's going to require that your employees are working on top of their normal job to collaborate with me or my team. And, you know, why is this the thing? You know, what changed uh, why do you need to do this now? Why not research the situation? Why not use off-the-shelf software? Why not mm-hmm. use Squarespace? Why not you know, why hire a developer? Why not just do this some easier, cheaper, faster way, mm-hmm. less risky way? And you can just go right down the list, and if it's going to be a good project, they'll, te- they'll have answers for all these things. And by the end of the conversation, if I'm convinced that I can help contribute to this outcome that they want, I will write a proposal. Meanwhile, they have convinced themselves that they need to do this right now and with me. <laughs> so mm. when, you, when I go to write the proposal, I've got all the language I need to put right in there from their mouths to my proposal about why they can't go with someone cheaper because it'd be too risky or they have done it before and they had a bad experience or so they don't want to go overseas because the time zone thing is too much of a problem and they have a, you know, whatever whatever objections might have come up later I raise in the beginning. And then if I can't talk them out of working with me, then I'll write a proposal because I don't really feel like writing proposals that aren't going to close. I'd rather write ones that are going to close. Sure. I don't know if I answered your question though.
0: <laughs> no, yeah. That, I mean, I think that, that answers it. I, to me, it just seems like a paradigm shift in your mind and it's kind of scary almost because I feel like a lot of agency owners that I know uh, and myself to some extent, sometimes you feel like you kind of luck out uh, when you get a great client or you, you have a meeting that people are like, hey, we want to hire you to do what you do. Um, and you're like, great, awesome. And I don't want to create any more friction than I have to, you know, in order to close this deal. And right. so it seems like when you start asking all these deep questions and stuff like that, that all of a sudden you're creating more friction. And uh, it seems scary to to do that, you know, because you might lose the gig.
2: That's why the, <laughs> this exact you're 100% right. That is what most people do. They just are like desperate for the next paycheck. They're desperate for the, to send that first invoice and get it paid. But that whole behavior and that relationship is the reason the website clients from hell exists. Because you're setting yourself up for failure. Because you're getting it's like there's a joke in the consulting world. Um, you start working. I'll go find out what they want. <laughs> <laughs> you right. know, and that's what you're doing. They're yeah. like, they're like, hey, we need. Uh, a logo. We need a bunch of videos. We need a bunch of videos edited. And you're like, great, I edit videos, 150 bucks an hour. They're like, that's a little, a little high. Well, I'm the best. Okay, great. Maybe they go forward with it, but you don't know why they want this done. It might be the wrong thing. You know, if it turns out that they're like, oh, you know, we think that having all these videos is going to improve employee retention, and you're like, these are marketing videos for your client. It's like it doesn't make any sense. There's no connection there whatsoever. Mm. And I, I recognize that most people do have that fear reaction uh, until they try it. Once they try it, when they get into imagine a situation in the past, you probably had the experience of, you know, the you brought it up earlier, the client being like, Oh, could you make the black a little blacker? Or yeah. you know, whatever. They're basically <laughs> they're basically telling you how to do your job. Yeah. Is because it's not achieving some outcome that they probably haven't shared with you yet. So if you imagine doing it the way I'm suggesting, and there's a clear goal, we want to improve employee morale. We want to increase customer retention. We want to decrease the bounce rate on our our, uh, homepage. We want to improve the conversion rate in our checkout process. Then when you have one of those just like, tedious torture meetings where 10 people are sitting in a room deciding exactly how black the black should be. Instead of that, you just say, "Look, here's the metric that we are measuring, here's the thing that we're measuring, this is the needle we're trying to move. Don't worry about how black the black is. I'll figure that out. That's why you hired an expert. You don't have to worry about that." So we can just move forward. You like you you have control back in mm-hmm. all of those design reviews where everybody's got an opinion. And you're like, look, this is what we're trying to accomplish here. And I don't see how making the black a little blacker is going to do it. And I'm the expert. (laughs) So it doesn't, if you set up, but you do have to push back. And that's why I I start the pushing back in the sales interview. So they're used to it. And it's like a test. I'm testing to see if they will uh, treat me like a peer and not like an order taker. So when they go through this whole thing, and you've probably had the sense when you're in a client meeting like this, that they feel like, you know, impress me, tell me why you are so great. And they're like basically asking for a pitch. I just flip that right around and be like, "Mm, no, thanks.
1: Yeah, I love that. And something I've noticed too, and I'm sure you've experienced this, is that when you do push back or when you ask hard questions or when you say, you know you don't try to sell yourself. It builds a lot of trust with people. You say very clearly what you do, what you don't do. And people respect even saying no, like, Hey, I know I'm not going to do this. It doesn't, I don't think it makes sense. I don't think it's going to help you rather than just taking their money. I think that's a great way to build long-term relationships with people. So I think that makes a ton of sense.
0: Oh man, this has been awesome. I can't wait to listen to next week's episode. Don't forget. This is a two part series. You're going to want to tune next week to hear the rest of this conversation. Uh, It's fantastic. We get some actionable items from Jonathan um, on how we can start implementing value-based pricing. And it is really good.
1: Yeah. And um, if you want to learn more about us and what we're up to, just go to thefridayhabit.com to find the show notes for this episode. Um, You can find links to our websites and ways to get in touch. And then at the bottom of the page, you can download our guide to the Friday Habit system that will show you how to set aside one full day each week dedicated to working on your business instead of in your business.
0: That's right. And again, thanks for listening. And remember, live every day like it's Friday.